sell them their dreams, sell them what they long for and hope for and almost despaired of having. Sell them hats by splashing sunlight across them. Sell them dreams, dreams of country clubs and proms and visions of what might happen if only. After all, people don't buy things to have things. They buy things to work for them. They buy hope, hope of what your merchandise will do for them. Sell them this hope and you won't have to worry about selling them goods. That is Helen Landon Cass in 1923, one of the founders of modern advertising. As you can tell, maybe by this episode, we're going to be talking about the consumerism, birth of consumerism in the 1920s and technology advancements in the 1920s. This is a history of financial markets, season three, episode four. I guess we forgot to say this on episode three, but my name is Brett Schaefer and I'm here with Ryan Henderson. Ryan, I think this will be a more discussion episode. What did you think about that quote? That could have been in 2020 too, right? Like, yeah, that aged well and aged really well. I, I, you know, this, I'm excited for this episode because it's hard to get a bubble going without a lot of uh, maybe foundational growth. Innovation. Innovation. That's usually a big propellant of it. Um, so I'm excited to dig into, and this was a, maybe, would you call it the greatest decade for innovation? I think you of can the make, last hundred years. Yeah. I, what well, I think we'll come to that conclusion when we get done with this, people think of like the nineties as innovative. They talk about that. I don't know. The 1900s and 1950 United States saw a lot of advancements. I mean, really like just general purpose stuff. Um, but let's go through some context. So in 1919 to 1929, there was a huge growth in factor productivity. It was growing by 3.7% per year. Now you might be asking, what is factor productivity? And that is the ratio of aggregate outputs to aggregate inputs. Again, you might be thinking, what are those two things? But essentially it is how much work it requires to produce goods and services and in the 1920s, American workers were getting a lot more efficient and could start doing the same work on average in fewer hours. So output per man hour increased 72% between 1919 and 1929. Now, let's lead to the final question here. Why was that important? It freed up people to explore new activities. It freed them up to vacation in their new automobiles. It freed them up to do leisure activities. And yes, it freed them up to care about the stock market. Now, if you were someone that worked 12 hours a day in a factory for not very good wages, you don't have time to care about, care about the stock market. But if your hours are reduced to eight hours a day, if you got rising incomes and you weren't as tired, you, you had more time to you know read some stuff and actually care about your life. And people ended up caring about the stock market. So that is one of the key parts. We'll get into some of the details of how all this stuff might work, kind of maybe some theories we'll talk about of what these technology advancements and productivity advancements did to help propel the stock market bubble. But I think that's the key one. People have more free time and more and more individuals, not just the ultra wealthy, were able to participate in the stock market. And let's give some more context around the economy. From 1922 to 1929, gross national product, similar to GDP, grew at an annual rate of 4.7% and reached $100 billion. So absolutely phenomenal growth. I mean, right now, what is it, like 1%? Is it good? 2% is a good year? Yeah, 2% is usually 
seen as a good year, I believe. Yeah. And well, the United States is a lot larger now. The world economy maybe is much more mature. Um, and another one, capital expenditures went from $11 billion in 1920 to $21 billion in 1929. Now, the relevance of this, I guess we should define what capital expenditures are. It is when a company is investing for future development. So say, easy one, building an apartment building. You spend, I don't know, X amount of dollars in capital expenditures to build the building. And why this is important is because it gives people more jobs. It, it, it just provides, when there's more CapEx, yeah, the CapEx has to be productive for people, but say if it's an apartment building, it one, it's, it's stimulating, uh, I don't know, there's just more demand out there for people to get work. And it provides a lot of, I don't know, if it's a new apartment building or something like that, it provides a better way for a family to live and something like that. And that can trickle down to other parts of the economy. Now, when this is happening, things are happening so fast. Things are improving so quickly for so many people that a lot of the old school, and this is classic, this is why I wanted to include this in here. This is from the Philly Gearworks. I found this quite funny reading this in one of, uh, one of the books about the 1920s. Quote, the work of a country cannot be done in 40-hour work weeks. The men of the country are becoming a race of softies and mollycoddles. It is time we stopped it and turned out some regular he-men. Now, besides right, that being gear, yeah, besides that being quite funny, they were totally wrong. Um, think about it; those people were brought till today. Um, they'd probably die. Uh, they would literally collapse. They wouldn't be able to take it. Of how everyone literally does no work. Um, yeah, or considering remote work would have killed them. Yeah, they, <laughs> they would have been protesting that in the streets. All right. So you have some context around that broad stuff, but let's look at technology and inventions of the 1920s. And there were a lot of them. So first up, the big one, I think the biggest one, well, maybe we can discuss what's the best, most important, but I think the most important was electricity. That might seem simple to a lot of people, but it is vital as kind of the backbone of economic development during this yeah. time. Uh, so 1929, electric motors were powering 70% of machines. And between 1920 and 1929, net production of electric energy rose 100%. Pretty easy to see the benefits there. It was really the baseline of all the other leisure and entertainment stuff that was rising during the time. Um, I don't know. Like, what, what What's powered by electricity? I mean, everything. I, people are getting maybe refrigerators at that point. I don't know if it was before. They were. If I'm yeah. yeah. HVAC conditioning. Lights. I mean, literally just lights. Air conditioning. I believe the first air conditioning, air conditioned building was the New York Stock Exchange in the 190. Yeah, really early. Yeah. And I think it, it was coming, becoming widespread in the 20s. Yeah. yeah. HVAC stuff. Um, but I mean, just in general, having the lights on at night, it uh, allows people to, you know, a lot of times before this, when people come home from work, it'd be dark out. Well, okay. We got some kerosene lamps. Uh, but now if you have light, it, it kind of extends the day for a lot of people. Next up, we have telephones. Now, telephone use grew by 70% in the 1920s, became very, very mainstream. I don't think it was in every person's house, but in a lot of houses. Um, I mean, how important is this, do you think, for the stock market? Because it really increased the ability to communicate with other people outside and of seeing newspapers. Communicate with your broker. And yes, exactly. Communicate with that broker who was trying to sell you some of that sweet, sweet radio corporation of it America. It makes the stock market so much more accessible because if you're thinking about the workday or the hours when the market was available, you were not going to be able to 
get to your broker if you're working. For most people. Yeah. The majority of people. Yeah. So, I mean, obviously, yeah, to this day, obviously, telephones are a huge invention. Yeah. And they, yeah, I guess they're not, the actual telephone part isn't as important anymore. They've evolved to, you know, the stuff we have now, I guess maybe some, maybe people, uh, maybe like Warren Buffett's still calling up his broker or something like that. But uh, uh, yeah, I mean, that that stuff was going on. Everyone did it that way back in the, the 1920s. Next up, we have automobiles. This is probably the most important product of the 20s. Um, production rose from 1.5 million in 1921 to 4.8 million in 1929. And this is what allowed people to move to the suburbs. It really created the suburbs. You could travel easily more than a few miles from your home and you weren't restricted by the railroad lines. So instead of being forced from going to say New York city to Philadelphia and then Washington DC, um, you go anywhere, there was a road and it untethered people to places, which gave them the freedom to move to other places. And like we mentioned in the housing bubble episode, it gave them the freedom to build houses 30 minutes from downtown. It's, I think it just gave people, as we all know, the, just the opportunity to get a bigger yeah. plot of land and a bigger place to live. Drastically increased mobility mm-hmm. for everyone. Yeah. And that was the, what was interesting is the combination of the invention of the automobile, which uh, it, happened a long, it happened a long time before this, but in 1920s, automobiles went mainstream for everyone. And at the same time, factor productivity is rising so much that the combination of the two made entertainment, leisure activities, say going to the beach was like not even a thing for most people. Now, almost everyone could do that. And you could, uh, you just had, your free time was being able to spend on a lot of other things. And all these new industries were invented, um, movie theaters. We'll get to that. I mean, it was just kind of crazy how those two combinations could have so big of an influence on the consumer products industry. And the next one we have here is the consumer, quote unquote. I hate, I, I, I feel weird calling you know people the consumer, but there was the consumer and advertising. So we had the quote from above uh, that we started the show with. And the 1920s was really the birth of the modern advertising industry and the American consumer or how people would be framed as the American consumer. So the pivotal things were higher wages, more leisure time, like I mentioned, so you have more time to buy stuff. And then the, one of the key things was the transition from homemade goods to store-bought goods. So store-bought clothes, store-bought whatever. And this enabled people to buy more things and services, which made giant advertising budgets feasible. They made sense. So people had the freedom to buy more stuff. They would advertise a lot more, convince them to buy more stuff. They had fed off each other and it's fed off each other really towards this day. And there was this quote in this book, I, I apologies to the author, you're definitely not listening, but um, I'm forgetting the name, but it goes through kind of the cultural stuff of the 1920s. And here's a quote that I think kind of frames how the 1920s was a huge transition period really for all of history. And here's the quote, quote, through the centuries, the problem has been how to produce enough of the things men wanted. The problem now is how to make men want and use more than enough things. So people have, not everyone, but a lot of people in the United States, I guess, really only at this point, maybe Europe and stuff like that, had enough stuff for basic necessity, shelter, food, clothing, uh, whatever. Maybe I'm forgetting. It it moved Uh, up. 
moved up the hierarchy of needs to what you wanted now. Discretionary spending. Yeah, exactly. And the key here, which what drove this and also just drove economic growth in general, was advertising spending actually doubled in the 1920s. So what are your thoughts? I spoke a lot on that. What are your thoughts on the consumer and advertising? Yeah, I think uh, it's kind of one of the things you think of during the 20s where you've, you've got more accessible cash, the value of your either investment or, or land continues to rise and you as a consumer feel richer. I think spending's uh, bound to increase when that happens. And then it's sort of a positive feedback loop where you get more advertising because more people are spending, the advertising increases spending once again. Uh, and, and I'm not surprised that that occurred all throughout the twenties. Yeah. And that leads into, there were a lot of innovative things that people could buy. Um, in, I don't know, in 1830, there are not that many products that people have ex- that are accessible to people. So the next category we have here is radio or, or stuff that wasn't that like in the twenties, these were things that could actually kind of enhance your life. Whereas in the 1830s, discretionary spending probably wasn't on things that were uh, making your life easier. Exactly. And you didn't even have like, mo- not even I'm saying you as in general, like on average, people had way, way less discretionary dollars. Um, all right. Radio is the next one. Probably the most influential cultural product of the twenties. Uh, just to con- context on the growth, there were 60,000 radio sets in 1922 that turned into 7.5 million by 1928. And radio, the key was, and it's hard to frame it nowadays because we have access to so much information, but radio brought the world in somewhat real time into homes. This is when NBC and CBS actually started out. They started out in radio. And here was a cold take from a pundit, I forget, I think from a newspaper about radio ads. Uh, quote, the present tendency of the broadcast chain and many individual stations to lower their bars to the greed of direct advertising will sap the lifeblood and destroy this magnificent new means of contact. Now, that obviously it's a cold take, but it's just an example of how important people thought radio was, how revolutionary it was to get access to people speaking basically immediately. It, it just didn't happen. You usually would read a speech maybe in the newspaper or something like that the next day. But now you can get it in real time if someone had access to that radio wave. News flow is so much faster with it, which gives yeah. you quicker time to react to uh, world-changing events. Yeah, and it gives you quicker time to react to stock market movements. So say someone's reading out stock prices now, you, that's it's pretty rudimentary compared to nowadays. You can look it up on your phone anywhere, but you say could... you didn't have access to the stock prices as a normal person outside of the stock exchange until the next day. So if someone could read off or say what was moving in the market during the day, you could call up your broker and say, all right, you have, you're connected to this um, web of investing, the investing world. All right. Next one. Uh, this is a small one. You might not think it's important, but rayon, uh, this is a material that was invented to make clothes cheaper. Um, I guess it has a lot of influence to this day and it really made it easier for people to buy things that they didn't make themselves. So it started the fashion industry and fashion culture and people buying clothes from department stores, all that good stuff. And it brought kind of clothes buying as a hobby or- Instead of a necessity. Yeah, or it brought it down from the 1% to the, the, the middle class. Sure. Um, all right, next one, we have two more. 
And this one, I was surprised at how big it was during this time. Movies. So motion pictures offered really, they, they were invented right around this time too. Again, you know, motion pictures, uh, radio, electricity, automobiles. I mean, these are some of the key parts of still of modern day life today. Uh, they offered really an escape into fantasy that used to only be in books. I mean, you could have like storytelling stuff back in, uh, before then it was in books or someone just literally telling a story. You have stuff on radio, I guess, at this point too. But movies, they were the first uh, video. Not It's not even video because I guess it's the wrong definition at the time because it's motion picture. But it was a similar type of stuff where people could experience these stories, which were more... With less work on your end. Yeah, and it was just way different. And I'm trying to say it was a bigger sensory experience for people. Um, very, very normal for us nowadays, but again, huge then. Um, and here's a quote from how influential people thought about it. Quote, our children are rapidly becoming what they see in movies. And movies actually became the fourth largest industry in the nation with 20,000 theaters across the country with half of them in towns of fewer than 5,000 people. Mm-hmm. So very, very influential. People will go to them all the time. And sometimes they even play newsreels in the movie theater. So it was like, you know, you didn't have TVs at home at this point. So it was kind of a way to access visual information. That makes sense. All right. What's the last one? Last one is golf and sport. So sports, again, with the leisure time became a real industry for, you know, middle-class everyday people in the 1920s. So for example, in 1916, the U S only had 743 golf courses in 19 in 1923, they had 1903 and in 1930, they had 5,856. And in 1929, Americans bought $500 million worth of sporting equipment, which was another fuel for the ad advertising industry. And again, at that time, that's a pretty sizable chunk of the economy. People are getting into sports now then for their leisure time. So I think that kind of comes back to the factor productivity thing where people had growing incomes by working less. You know, they were way more efficient with their work. And with those growing incomes, they were able to buy more things from other people who were starting their own businesses and all that stuff. It, it was like, uh, it seemed almost too good to be true. And it comes to this quote from one of the kind of, it's I guess historians, but it was one of the famous, not, it's not authors, but kind of one of those, not uh, writers of the time that wrote about the current topics, Frederick Lewis Allen. Here's a quote here. The thrill of more and better things was driven by a rising tide of technological innovations that presented the public with a ceaseless flow of new delights while also conditioning them to expect new miracle products on a regular basis. So what did you think? Like, would, would you be expecting that if you kept getting all these magical products in the, the 1920s? Yeah, it's very easy. If you're putting putting myself in the shoes of someone in the 20s and seeing the pace of innovation, it would very it'd be very easy to extrapolate that out into the future and say, where can you go from there? As for the golf and sporting, I think people still golf when they have a lot of free time, but I can't imagine the greens were very good at the time. Oh, that's a good point. Maybe, maybe uh, yeah, they were probably a lot... Eh. I don't know. It depends. It depends. On, I bet maybe, you know, it depends on how nice the courses. John D. Rockefeller's course and all those rich people, they may have had some good green upkeep. All right. Second part of this one, and which is going to lead us into the crash, is 
what the quote summer of fun in 1929. So this will be short, but we'll just close it out. In the summer of 1929, everyone seemed to be prospering, at least from the middle class of people and above. Broker loans, which are loans from brokers out to people for money they don't have, stood at $6.2 billion in August 1929, up $2 billion from 1928. The number of people with incomes over 10,000 a year had doubled over the last decade. Steel production and railroad cars were booming, which were leading indicators for the economy at the time. Again, this is in the summer of 1929. Quote, during the U.S. amateur golf tournament at Pebble Beach, the E.F. Hutton brokerage firm erected a temporary office in the tent near the 18th green so that spectators and players could follow their favorite stocks and execute orders. That is one of the toppiest signals I've ever seen. In 1929, there were 23 million cars on the road, which allowed people, like we've talked about, to travel easily to places like the beach, the mountains, and the growing national park system. In the 1920s, rich people, instead of having a private jet, like they might nowadays, would have a private railroad car. So that was kind of one of the cool things that people would have during the days. By the end of the decade, an investment banking partner at JP Morgan was making $5 million a year. Today's dollars, that'd be quite a lot. Um, I think like 40 million, maybe something like that. More. And auto, or go ahead. I'm pretty sure it's a lot more. Yeah, right, right a little, yeah, you can probably look it up online, get a little uh, inflation calculator. And then Otto Kahn of Kuhn and Loeb had the most extravagant house of the day. He built a Norman castle on Long Island's North Shore with 170 rooms, a full golf course, a zoo filled with lions, and 11 reflecting pools. It was later the set for the movie Citizen Kane. And you can still go to it and get a tour of the place today. It would have been eight, 84 million a year. 84 million. So... They're, they're doing quite well over at that little uh, company called J.P. Morgan. So that's some context of how booming the economy felt in 1929. And that is where we're going to leave this episode. Little would everyone know that later in 1929, the American economy would go into, a, well, the stock market would crash. And a few years later, it would be into a full depression, the worst in its history. And the stock market would not recover its highs until the 1950s, over two decades later. <laughs>